All right. Well, this is the last sermon of our series, Acts Reenacted. We're in the final straight today. Last week, we had a look at Paul's defense before Festus and Agrippa. He's up there in Caesarea and he's caught up in that red tape, as you saw there. And, uh, and uh, we found that his choice of defense was, in fact, his own personal testimony. And uh, we see there, we, as we examine his speech, we could see three key elements come out uh, that you and I must make space for if we intend on going about sharing our own story as well. Hopefully, if you remember those, good, tuck them away. If you weren't there last week, here they are. First up, acknowledge what you were before Christ. That's a no-brainer. There was a BC moment in our life. No matter how young you were, no matter how you came to faith, there was a time where there was a BC time in your life. Then focus on the moment of change that occurred in your life. Or in simple terms, reflect on the part of the story where you're able to say, then Jesus. And once you've got that worked out, share the story of change that has occurred since that time. You know, every believer should be bearing fruit. Every believer should be experiencing some sort of transformation. And therefore, every believer should have something to be able to share uh, is part of that part of the story. So now it's time to conclude our series. And uh, then after that, we're actually going to give the mic to the floor and, and give you guys time to ask any questions or, or comments or throw your two bobs worth in over the course that, from anything that we've talked about over the last six months. I do have all my notes here. We can talk about anything you like. And I'm going to ask you as the church, members of our church, to perhaps pray in amongst our final word of worship there into some of the stuff I'm going to cover in this conclusion. So have your thinking cap on, see if the Lord quickens you, and, uh, and we'll see how we go there. Now, as I said at the beginning of this series, the church of Wangaratta has had some very interesting times in its recent history. It's no secret. We have a well-documented history around the whole city here where there's been division, there's been dysfunction, there's been different things go on. There's been some things that we probably shouldn't be that proud of over the years. But there has been a renewal period as well. And the Lord has done some great things just renewing the churches. And, and uh, you know, there's been this, what I would call a gospel period. In fact, that's what I felt the Lord was sh- telling me to share um, that, or sort of interpret what was going on. It's like we had a gospel period in our church history here. You know, it's been a place where the people of God have been realigned by Jesus and we've been collectively repositioned so that we can get on with the task that the church is supposed to be doing. The years under Graham Smith and, and, and even the last 12 months that we've had together here have pretty much served that purpose in our local assembly. I believe God is positioning us for something truly great in the future of this church. After the gospel renewal, where we get to the place where we're making it all about Jesus again, comes Pentecost and the work outlined in Acts, which sets the scene and scope of the work for the church until the day of his return. We notice if you read Acts that there is no amen at the end of Acts. There's no so be it sort of statement there going, this is it, let's lock this away now. There's no sense of that. All we see in the book of Acts are just the first 28 chapters of everyday life for normal believers in the church age. Beginning at midday today, our very own chapter 29 begins. We live in Acts chapter 29 and beyond. That's our time. This is a time where we as a Book of Acts church continue the stories laid out by Luke all those centuries ago. I deliberately chose 
the title of this series, um, you know, because the intended outcome is that we reenact what was going on throughout the course of what we read about in Acts should be reenacted and the principles gathered in that time should be present in our own mission and, and our own work of, of, of the church as well. And hopefully you recognize what that is in the background there. That was a photo I took. Anybody know what's in the, in the background there? Anybody actually notice that? It's a road. That's actually, I actually set a bit of a perspective there. That's my King James Bible open, Book of Acts. And I took a photo over the top of that overlooking Murphy Street. The idea being that we are actually called to reenact what we know about the Book of Acts and be a Book of Acts church into our local city, into our local region. So if you haven't caught that already, that's actually Murphy Street in the background. I'm actually trying to create a bit of personal context for, the, uh, for what we're doing here. Now, I've covered a heap of material over a six-month period. And uh, I realize that unless you're a strong to- note-taker or downloader or CD listener, there's a lot of detail that might have been lost in the shuffle as we've gone along. I want to encourage us as a church to continually revisit this part of the Bible because the principles and that sort of stuff needs to continually be enriched within us. But also I ask you to remember, I want to leave three key things with us as we conclude this series today and, and leave three main thoughts. If you take these three ingredients out of Acts, you pretty much don't have Acts. That's what I feel anyway as I've been reading this through. So uh, let's take these three things away with us and look at what typified the book of Acts and what should therefore typify us as well. So we're going to look at three things. First up, the book of Acts church is unified. There is a united front in the book of Acts. Acts 2 opens with the idea of the believers in one place or one mind or one accord. And we read that as a result of that, the believers were in the right position for the Holy Spirit to be able to begin that new era that we call the church age. And later in that chapter, we see that 3,000 people come to the Lord and they embrace that same mindset as well. At the start of the chapter, they're in one accord. 3,000 people come to the church and then we still read that they're still in that same place of one accord. It's pretty cool. As we explore that text, we know that the journey of reading this text is a whole lot less arduous than actually what it took to write it. And I had a chance to share this at the Jazz Festival, but you know, if you missed that, it's worth repeating anyway. You know, for a Greek writer like, like, like Luke, you know, he had a few options up his sleeve when he was trying to write what he was seeing here. It is believed that he was gathering all his research about Jesus and all that stuff uh, you know, at the beginnings of the church when he came back to Jerusalem with Paul. So when he was writing all this stuff, it wasn't long. It was, he was gathering all this stuff, you know, just not long before Paul's arrest. But it was still some time removed from that original day of Pentecost. He could easily see an element of, that was in there. He could see that the church was on the same page. There was something about it in all his travels and all that he had seen so far. The church was actually on the same page. He could see an element of oneness about them, or in the Greek, homos same he could see the concept of sameness about them but he had a surgeon's eye he had an eye of detail and he had to ask himself a question as he was trying to write this stuff out oneness of what exactly there was a mindset but what exactly was that he had the option first up to write the word logos homos logos Homos Logos. And this would have been used 
if he decided that the church was on the same page intellectually. But we see, as he's documented throughout the book of Acts, this was clearly not the case all the time. Luke needed something a little bit more consistent to be able to share what he was noticing about this church. So he might have been able to look at the word eros, emotion. Since Jesus told the church to abound in love for each other, surely the church could be on the same emotional page, right? But then we read that that always wasn't the case either. But Luke had a third option, which to his relief summed the church up perfectly. Thumos. In Greek culture, in Greek thinking, Thumos, it was the Thumos of a man that caused him to help a damsel in distress. It was the Thumos of a man that would cause him to get fired up at an injustice. It was the Thumos of a man that would riot and get mad when things were not going right. It was the thing within man that caused them to take passionate action in a cause that they deeply believed in, both wrong and right. This word was ideal for the church because despite their intellectual and their emotional shortcomings, the church was clearly united when it came to the cause that they were all engaged in. The lesser options could have been true, but only to a point. A church united in emotion sits in and eventually wallows in its own comfort. A church united in intellect alone ends up living in disdain for those who don't see it their way. But a church that unites in cause makes space for all sorts of people and allows them all to find the love of God for themselves. The absence of thumos in the life of the church means no drive, no passion, and no reason for you and I to meet on a Sunday morning. A book of Acts church knows that their cause is to win the lost to Christ. And they're driven because they see the plight of lost people as a scene of the greatest sense of injustice. And they're united in trying to fix that. But we see that this unity was challenged, wasn't it? We see a challenge in character with Ananias and Sapphira. We see a challenge in conflict and complaints, and we saw loads of external challenges come their way as well. But we also see that each time something cropped, everything, every, each time something cropped up in the church, they would fight to keep their oneness going at full strength. When character issues came, the Lord exposed it. When conflict came, the church found the solution quickly. When the old schoolers opposed the new schoolers, they found their forward-focused solution together. When persecution came, yes, they scattered, but they made more believers everywhere they went. When life gave them lemons, they made lemonade. That was their attitude. It was awesome. And even as Paul travels around, he is able to see unity continue with all the Gentile churches, everyone outside of Israel, banding together and raising funds, loads of it, for the sake of the Jews in in Jerusalem who became impoverished. The the Judea and Galilee got hit by famine like you wouldn't believe, and the the, uh, Gentile churches actually banded together and sent cash back with Paul to that struggling church. Paul did that to actually promote unity within the church there. Unity matters, and if we take it out of the book of Acts we diminish the work of the church severely. 
I believe we have one major challenge of unity before us as we go ahead. And I'll make one last point about it today. We can put it on CD and forever move on from it, hey? Our unity comes from my heart about this. Within my heart, this is what I see. In every part of life out there, the older influence learns to embrace and empower the young in all walks of life in our community. In sport, it's the 59-year-old Mick Malthouse and 64-year-old Kevin Sheedy who are taking the reins of young football sides and coaching them. Even Tommy Hafey, who's 76 or 77 years old, still trains with junior footy sides. We see that they're doing it without demanding they play a game style from the 70s. And instead, they recognise that the sport has changed and they've evolved with it enough to be able to take the reins of younger kids and see success against coaches of younger coaches. Even in things like professional wrestling, which a lot of kids watch, the biggest cheers are coming from kids who are cheering for old guys, Ric Flair and Jerry Lawler, 65 and 63. And these guys are standing in the corners of the younger wrestlers. And in sports terms, and particularly in wrestling terms, we call that giving the young guys a rub. They gain credibility by hanging with the legends. In the business world, if you're 60 and want to keep your job against the young bucks coming in, you learn the computer skills and modern management styles. And you embrace it, even though you are internally lamenting when the young guys expect to be CEOs at 21. In music, the big guys filling stadiums with young fans are the 63-year-old Bruce Springsteen, the 64-year-old Steven Tyler, and the 69-year-old Mick Jagger. In the Australian church scene, we have one of the most progressive leaders out there with a brilliant track record in raising up young men and women for, for the Lord and raising up young leaders. If you visit that church, even on a Saturday night, you will see elderly ladies taking their regular seats and worshipping like it's you know, worshipping you know, with young 20-something-year-old guys rocking the stage. And you will watch them paying attention and writing notes when 25-year-old guys are preaching for the first time on the stage as well. That church, of course, is Hillsong. That pastor is, is Brian Houston. He just celebrated his 60th birthday. What I have noticed in the conservative mainstream church scene it seems to be one of the environments that hasn't caught up with the trends of the world as a whole. In sport, the older mentors teach the young guys about stuff that the young guys have never picked up. Longevity and discipline being some of those things. And in church life, you can do that for the young. In business, the older learn the modern methods but teach the younger guys patience, ethics and character. In progressive churches, the older embrace the new and teach them the things that no Bible college will ever teach. They teach them about the experience of long-term faith. They teach them about the things they've seen go right and go wrong. We see the older people are giving the young guys, the new guys, the young guys, the reins and spotlight, and they're coaching them and they're praying for them in the background. That's our one big challenge as a church here is to keep that Hebraic, Hellenistic divide bridged. To understand that generationally we will be challenged. But the young guys are looking to the older because they need to see the longevity. They need to see heroes. You guys are the heroes waiting to happen. 
My hero right now is a 61-year-old man named Larry Huck in the States. He was my first pastor and he was a guy my age now. You are going to be the hero to somebody. Be ready to empower them when they come. In Philippians 2.2, the old Hebraic Paul writes this, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. The same word there, homothumos. As a church, stay on the same page and keep your eye on the same cause. Our cause is simple, and that is to reach lost people because their current eternal destiny is the greatest injustice that we could ever dedicate our time to fixing. Church was unified. Their unity led to the next key thing, and that was the reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that we fit into the conservative element of church society here. So I recognize that this will be met with cautious hearts this morning when I mention this. We've seen a lot of things done in our time, haven't we? Supposedly in the name of the Holy Spirit. Seen some horror stories, seen some things. I've seen people shoot hoops, shoot basketball hoops in the Spirit. I've seen sort of stuff like that that kind of makes you cringe. I'm an ex-Pentecostal pastor and I'm actually siding with the conservatives on this one. But as we engage with Acts, we clearly see that we should not be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The Holy Spirit is referred to 41 times in Acts alone. And we see that the work he did in and through the believers was truly staggering. It was the key factor in giving them the voice they needed to be the witness in in their world, but it also gave them the wisdom and the courage that they needed as well, particularly in an environment where their lives hung in the balance many times we know scripturally that the holy spirit is actually the spirit of jesus himself in john 14 26 jesus says that after he leaves the holy spirit will descend and will serve to continually remind us of what he said in the flesh and to act as our advocate and counselor in the christian life when we made that decision to accept christ and invite him in our life we were receiving the holy spirit of jesus 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we are the temple. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. He's actually already residing there. But there's also Pentecost. And we see a number of events through the book of Acts where believers experience a time of refreshing or empowering in the Holy Spirit. Something we know today is an immersion or a baptism. As we read about these times, we see some instances where, you know, where they begin to speak in other languages or tongues. We also see new levels of boldness. We see levels of clarity and communication. We see miracles. We see signs. We see special anointings happening through these times. There used to be an old Baptist belief back in the day that this sort of thing stopped when the last apostle dropped off the perch. There was also another that suggested any modern expression might not be godly at all. I'll put to you today, there is actually no scriptural evidence to back any of that up. The spirit movement and empowering and baptism that we read about in Acts is still very much available to us today as well. Ephesians 5 tells us this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. 
Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is writing to an Ephesian church here, and this is what he's saying. Don't get caught up in the euphoria of the drunken world around you over there in Ephesus. Instead, be filled with another holy entity, which is just as noticeable in our lives. Instead of drunken songs, you'll have a song in your heart to the Lord. And the concept of filling here that Paul uses in the Greek is the word pleru, which means to be filled to capacity, and it carries the thought of perpetual filling. In other words, be, be filled. Be, continually be filled with the Spirit. As you give out, you refill, and as a result, you always remain empowered in the Holy Spirit. That's how it's supposed to work. I believe this church will engage with the Holy Spirit a little bit more as we go along. There won't be big lines up front and people getting knocked over as we try and pray. I used to hate those times. I used to be the catcher, and you always had serial fallers. I never understood that. But I do believe that we need some divinely appointed power to help us along the way. And it's there for us to be able to use. Already behind the scenes, there have been people in our church who have begun to seek this sort of thing, this sort of empowering. And we will allow him space to move in our services. But rest assured, it will be no, by no means be a strange thing. It might not even appear different most Sunday mornings, but the Lord is and will continue to be doing things in people's hearts over the course of our Sunday mornings. I can encourage you with this way. Please just be open to him in your own life. He's already residing within us, so we may as well walk in his power as well. So we've got unity. We've got a reliance on the Holy Spirit. And finally, with their unity in place and with their unity guarded and with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, the third ingredient is made possible, and that is this. A book of Acts church understands that it exists for mission. This gospel message was never intended to be a small thing. The wonders of God's love for us was never supposed to be contained. We see this throughout Scripture, old and new. Jeremiah 20, he actually writes this, If I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. As we read the context of that verse, we see that this was coming from a guy who was copying a battering from all those who heard what the Lord had given him to say. He was not saying popular things from the Lord on this time. People were not taking what he had to say well. And they were getting physical. He was copying a battering for this. Yet even he admits he was powerless to contain the things he had received from the Lord. Matthew 5, Jesus said this, You are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're not supposed to be in the dark here, guys. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, the word of the Lord is an uncontainable thing. And as we read through Acts, we see that it could not be contained no matter who tried to stop it. On one day, we see thousands coming to Christ. And we see that everywhere Christians went, revival sprung up. We spent a lot of time looking at the different people groups and mentalities that the early church encountered. And we could see loads of clues for us today as we engage with the unchurched in our local context. 
A book of Acts church embraces the fact that they have a missions field on their doorstep and they actively seek to engage with it to see the kingdom of God be extended. I mean, just think about the many things we saw over the course of this series. We started with a simple idea of Jewish audiences here. We saw the ones who had a familiarity with God, but were not connected to Jesus yet. We expanded into a Samaritan audience and eventually a Gentile audience. As we examined that Gentile audience, we saw many different aspects in play, didn't we? We saw those who embraced the darker things of life, like the presence of sorcery in Cyprus and Samaria. We need to understand there is a spiritual force at work out there trying to halt what you and I have to say. Need to stand against it in the Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. We saw those who lived like the Lystrans, who had a strong bent for superstition. We see plenty of that out there, don't we? We saw those in Macedonia who had special needs to be met as Paul ministered. And we saw a handful of responses that we can expect to encounter. Saw nobility, we saw hostility, we saw that sort of stuff. Saw humility. In Athens, we saw the philosophies of the Stoics and the Epicureans. And both of those still have some sort of expression today, don't they? You know, the Stoics, you know, any God will do sort of thing. You know, Stoic, Stoic expression is present in things like Freemasonry and stuff like that. The Epicurean mindset is present in people who live for today and see no point in investing in eternal things. In Ephesus, we saw people who were living in the wrong baptism or were religiously prepared, but all had not been, received, all had not been revealed yet. And we saw others who were living on second-hand faith. And finally, back on Israeli turf, we see the thinking of Festus and Agrippa, who had been alienated from God through complication or hypocrisy. It's truly a mixed bag of people that make up our mission field out there. But thankfully, we've been left with a heap of tried and true principles by the apostles that went before us. Let me encourage you to revisit those sermons. You know, and seek to adopt the principles for yourself, particularly if you recognize the mindsets that you are dealing with in your own context. We're going to wind up about here because I want to give you guys some time for questioning and we still have plenty of time in the service today. Here we are, three ingredients or principles that pretty much sum up Acts. And three principles which should, should sum us up as well. Unity. You know what? In all ways, in all things, in all generations, in all mindsets, and in our cause, let's be unified, the unified body of believers that we're called to be. Let's recognize the areas where division can pop up. Let's recognize the things where we, we uh, know that we will find differences about. Let's be self-aware with those things. And let's be proactive and say, you know what? Those things aren't going to drag me down. Those things aren't going to stop us as a body of believers. Let's be the unified body of believers that we're called to be. Where unity exists, God commands a blessing. Let's be a church that is open to the Holy Spirit. And let's do this understanding that there is a theologically sound and balanced diaconate in this church who are going to work with me to ensure that it's a spirit at work and not anything manufactured. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And let's be mission-minded. We're about to enter a time where we will meet all sorts of people in our life. 
let's be ready because officially as we leave the door today Acts 29 starts we engage in our mission field already I've probably been face to face with about 20 people this morning spending a little bit of time in the McDonald's car park and being able to share just about what I do and who I am and what I stand for and stuff like that with a bunch of people who are out of town it's amazing who you're going to bump into already it's crazy and you know what there are so many different mindsets present when I was just talking to those different things and I see evidence of all those things I've already outlined let's be mission minded yes we have a missions budget to achieve and we've got three major focuses of our church but that's backyard mission uh, you know like our backyard is our mission field as well even more so and let's aim to really affect that this year you know what we've got Easter coming up let's use that time because you know what we're going to do here you know we're going to do something credible you know we're going to do something that's clear you know we're going to do something evangelistic so you may as well get on with it and start to think of people you're going to invite to that friends, family members, neighbours you know, we're going to have times through the year Mother's Day, Father's Day will be special times where we reach unchurched mums and dads Jen was talking to me last night she's in Sydney, she'll be back today we're going to do an evangelistic stream to the Hope Women's Day we're going to do youth outreach and you know what We've, if, if, if you told any youth ministry in the country right now that 30 people would you know, like something like 20 new faces would be coming to your youth group only a few weeks in they'd be doing backlips but that's exactly what's occurred in our youth ministry in the last term bunch of new faces great things happening and we've got a great youth ministry coming in and you know what the youth program is not youth church if you're counting on me to disciple your kids or make that a church experience we're nowhere near that point Sunday's church Sunday's where people grow but it's a massive outreach thrust at the moment that we are doing. And you know, mainly music is a massive outreach thrust. You know, we've got to be ready to receive those people that are starting to come and become influenced by us. The craft group is yielding fruit. There's just great things that our church is doing. So let's be ready. Let's be mission-minded. And whoever comes into our door on any given Sunday morning is our mission field. Let's be ready to get around them. So mission, Holy Spirit, unity. They're the three. 